Well, good morning. And amen to that. I really appreciate that. Um, I was reminded uh, as you were speaking, I was reminded of the phrase, you are as spiritual as you want to be. And the position that you have in the body is not the problem. Or your role in the body is not the problem. It rarely is. But we do need to... uh, we do need to practice or the uh, finding the gifts in each other and encouraging them and uh, giving people a chance to practice those gifts that God has given them. So uh, I guess my message is along the same lines it will also be focusing on the the local body I felt that um, I should bring a word on unity and uh, how precious it is if it is practiced in a in a local body and uh, just a unity in in a fellowship and uh, how it can be and the hindrances of unity and the benefits of unity so before we begin I would also like to pause for a word of prayer Father we just want to thank you for giving us another new day may you help us Father to leave behind the yesterdays but to also remember Father that we are not to carry our uh, sins and our our unforgiveness to this new day. We pray, Father, that we will forgive if there are things that need to be forgiven and let go of things that need to be let, let go of. We also pray, Father, that you will continue to be with us here and help us as we look into your word. Realize and understand the preciousness of unity, of being together, of... of uh, being a light in this world. So, Father, may you be glorified through our lives, through our personal lives, and through our our community. Father, as the world looks at us, as the world sees us, what do they see? They see that we love each other. They see that we care for each other in a genuine way. Help us to truly ask ourselves these questions. We just bless you and we thank you for your faithfulness to us. Through our lives, the challenges that we face, we know that you are greater than each one. We know, Father, that you have the answer to each one if we press in, Lord, to ask you and to seek from you. Because you have said, ask, and it will be given, seek, and you will find knock and the door will be open unto you. Help us to grasp these promises in faith and to keep our eyes fixed on you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I do want to begin with Psalms 133. That's the obvious choice to start. Verses 1 to 3, it says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments. As the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. So here you have a picture, if you can picture it in your mind's eye, of Aaron. He is standing there dressed up in his priestly garments. And you have this ointment that is running down his head, down his beard, and even down his skirts to the hem of his garments. And the Lord chose to show this this as a picture of unity. 
And I guess you have to unpack it a little more to, to get some definition out of it. It's like uh, the oil running down is a picture of abundance that drips and runs down the whole body and not just the head. And the oil naturally gives off a sweet fragrance to all those who come into its vicinity. And then it speaks of the dew of Hermon. And we all know what dew is. Dew is very life-giving. It gives life to the parched plants, the grass and the trees. It usually appears in the morning. And it's, it's life-giving. It gives life to those who dwell in its presence. This psalm portrays the preciousness and sweetness of harmony, oneness, and like-mindedness in the fellowship of God. And the first line is something that should really strike our hearts. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. There the Lord commanded a blessing, even life forevermore. And then we continue on to another section of the Bible of Jesus' prayer for us as his disciples. Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, verses 20 to 26, he says this. As he was praying, he, says, I, he said, I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So he was speaking of future, of future Christians. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. And this is a very important point here. Why are we to be one? That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Continuing on with verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. It's a wonderful prayer, and I'm glad that Jesus prayed it. It just shows us his heart for his children. And then in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. There's a lot to say in these verses. And hopefully unity is something that we all desire. Especially in the setting that we are in. I believe it's something that is very precious in the sight of God. Why? Because it brings glory to his name. It shows the world a picture of his heavenly kingdom here on this earth. A picture of what it looks like to have men, women, and children who have been redeemed dwelling together in love and harmony. A picture to the world 
of the power of Christ's redemption. We pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want to show forth what heaven looks like here on this earth. I want to also read uh, Nehemiah chapter 4. They were building the wall there. Nehemiah chapter 4 verses 1 to 23. Now when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in the land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to have its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other and each of the builders with his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass by, pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a, a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. It's quite a picture, as you picture them working there and building. And it's... It's to me a picture of what a church is supposed to look like. That in building, they not only built, but they had their weapons at their side. Which to me, it looks, it looks like that if you plug that into a spiritual aspect, is the weapon, of course, is prayer and being watchful for the enemy who is seeking to come and destroy what has already been built. And it can, it's, it's astonishing to note is that those walls were rebuilt in 52 days. If you've ever seen Jerusalem, um, that's quite a feat. 
And uh, a point that of this story is this. Hopefully we're also building something. And hopefully it's not walls. But something that glorifies Christ's kingdom. And just like these Jews had enemies, we also have enemies. Well, hopefully a enemy, which is the devil. And we all know what he's about. The word of God clearly shows us that Satan, the enemy, comes only to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And we tend to forget that Satan is the one that we should be fighting. We tend to start focusing inward on petty issues that soon become our main points of concern. And sometimes those petty issues, it seems like they start a great fire. It's like I'm reminded of that verse that says, Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. It's just, sometimes it's incredible to see the little things that cause us the greatest problems. We tend to start focusing on ourselves and the weightier matters are ignored or forgotten. That is all part of the enemy's plan to sow a discord among brethren, because he knows that if we take our eyes off of Christ and onto one another and onto these petty things, he has gained a foothold. Just a short story here. It says, On the day before the Battle of Trafalgar, Lord Nelson took two of his captains who were at variance to a spot where they could see the fleet that opposed them. Yonder, said the admiral with a sweep of his hand, are your enemies. The captains shook hands and forgot their differences in the face of their common enemy. Very true. The devil is our enemy, not one another. Especially if we call ourselves Christians. Sure, the devil uses people. I mean, that's basically all he can use, but he uses situations and petty things to cause divisions. The Great Wall of China is a monumental structure which stretches 13,171 miles along China's northern border. It is a formidable structure meant to dissuade any would-be armies and raiding parties. But you know how most of the time the wall was breached and when the defenses broken? The guards were bribed to open the gate. Simple as that. Or there was nobody there guarding the wall, so they just went over it. It's something to ponder on. Sometimes as hard as we work to maintain unity, it's the smallest things that cause the biggest problems. And if sometimes when people come in and, and they, they see and watch and listen, they just shake their heads at the little things that uh, we dwell on so much. Genesis 11, verses 1 to 9, it says, And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. They said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. 
Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of the earth. And from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad the face of all the earth. So the point of this is what? They had unity, didn't they? Of course they did, but it was all for the wrong reasons. And the point I want to bring out with this is unity that looks good on the outside, but in reality, it's, it's not really real. It's, it's for the wrong purpose, the wrong motive. And what I'm trying to say with this is, unity that looks good on Sunday, but doesn't work on the remaining days of the week. Sundays are usually our best days. Everybody's really friendly, especially if we have guests. It's, and it's good. It should be like that. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's, but unity that lasts and that can be seen and that is real should be from Monday to, fr- to Saturday and on to Sunday. We're all people, and uh, I think as people we make a lot of mistakes. But it's just that Sunday unity is not the true unity. That's all good, but it has to be more than that. It better be more than that, because soon we will be found out Are we striving to maintain the bond of peace? And that's a challenge. Are we striving to maintain, it's what Brother Jacob uh, shared in the opening, the people that we work with, are we striving to maintain the bond of peace? And yes, we will definitely at times be a porcupine. It seems like the closer we get together, the more the more the the spines stick into each other. But we need each other. And we need to look past the pokes that we get sometimes and to maintain the bond of peace. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. I think this goes very well with unity, with maintaining peace and harmony. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. I think that sometimes we feel that the things that we allow have no bearing on others. They have no consequence on our children. They have no consequence on our brothers and sisters. And we just basically do what we do when we say to others, get over it. But there is, there is a lot more to it than that. I'm al- always reminded of when Paul spoke of weaker brethren in the word. And he came to the point where he said, If my brother is offended that I eat meat, I will not eat another piece of meat again. I'm not there, and I'll plainly admit that. But he truly understood what it meant to actually have compassion and concern for brothers around you. But I also know that a lot of us look at those situations and we think, well, why should he be controlling my conscience? Why should he be the one that's taking away my freedom here of eating meat? I'm sorry, that's just the way it is. I can't look at it any other way. That's just the way the Christian life works. In order for you to win a person, you have to be willing to give that up. Because Christ gave up so much for us. I've used this uh, story in the Word before, but I feel it's, it's very important. It's found in Exodus 17. Verses 8 to 16. It says, Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. 
And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us, choose us out men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed, and when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon, and Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. It's an awesome picture. It has deep spiritual meaning of lifting up one another's hands. And I believe that brings unity. It brings harmony. It brings a not a, a a group of believers that look not on their own things, but also on the things of others. And that's what it's all about. I want to now go and look at some examples in creation that show us examples of unity and of uh, basically working together in a harmonious way. And I know there's the main ones of, if you look at ant colonies, if you look at bee colonies, if you look at uh, the animal kingdom, those are the obvious ones that we usually look at. Say, wow, look at that, look at the order, look at the, uh, the unity there, of everyone doing what they're supposed to be doing, of everyone pitching in and helping out. But I've, uh, I've come across one that's surprising. Um, I listened to it, uh, listened to it a years ago, and it's never really left me of of how this actually is quite a picture in a kind of a hidden place, and it's a study on trees. Do trees talk to each other? Peter Voleben thinks so. He's a, a scientist, uh, obviously. He used to be actually a forester who took down forests, but then he started actually studying trees. Voleben sees a forest as superorganisms of unique individuals. A revolution has been taking place in the scientific understanding of trees, and Peter Voleben is the first writer to convey its amazements to a general audience. The latest scientific studies conducted at well-respected universities in Germany and around the world confirm what he has long suspected from close observation in the forest. Trees are far more alert, social, sophisticated, and even intelligent than we thought. We have generally thought of trees as striving, disconnected loners competing for water, nutrients, and sunlight, with the winners shading out the losers and sucking them dry. The timber industry in particular sees forests as wood-producing systems and battlegrounds for survival of the fittest. There is now a substantial body of scientific evidence that refutes that idea. It shows instead that trees of the same species are communal, and will often form alliances with trees of other species. Forest trees live in cooperative, interdependent relationships maintained by communication and collective intelligence similar to an insect colony. These soaring columns of living wood draw the eye upward to their outstretched crowns, but the real action is taking place underground, just a few inches below our feet. Some are calling it the wood wide web, says Wallaben. All the trees here and in every forest that is not too damaged are connected to each other through underground fungal networks. Trees share water and nutrients through the, the networks and also use them to communicate. They send distress signals about drought and disease, for example, or insect attacks. And other trees alter their behavior when they receive these messages. Scientists call these 
Mycorrhizal networks, the fine hair-like root tips of trees join together with microscopic fungal filaments to form the basic links of the network, which appears to operate as a symbiotic relationship between trees and fungi, or perhaps an economic exchange. As kind of a fee for services, the fungi consume about 30% of the sugar that trees photosynthesize from sunlight. The sugar is what fuels the fungi as they scavenge the soil for nitrogen, phosphorus, and other mineral nutrients, which are then absorbed and consumed by the trees. For young saplings in deeply shaded part of the forest, the network is literally a lifeline. Lacking the sunlight to photosynthesize, they survive because big trees, including their parent trees, pump sugar into their roots through the network. Trees also communicate through the air, using pheromones and other scent signals. Voleben's favorite example occurs in the hot, dusty savannas of of sub-Saharan Africa, where the wide-crowned umbrella thorn acacia is the emblematic tree. When a giraffe starts chewing acacia leaves, the tree notices the injury and emits a distress signal in the form of ethylene gas. Upon detecting this gas, neighboring acacias start pumping tannins into their leaves. In large enough quantities, these compounds can sicken, sicken or even kill large herbivores. Giraffes are aware of this, and this is why they browse into the wind, so the warning gas doesn't reach the trees ahead of them. If there's no wind, a giraffe will typically walk 100 yards, farther than ethylene gas can travel in still air, before feeding on the next acacia. Giraffes, you might say, know that the trees are talking to one another. Trees can detect scents through their leaves, which for Waleben qualifies as a sense of smell. They also have a sense of taste. When elms and pines come under attack by leaf-eating caterpillars, for example, they detect the caterpillar saliva and release pheromones that attract parasitic wasps. The wasps lay their eggs inside the caterpillars, and the wasp larvae eat the caterpillars from the inside out. Very unpleasant for the caterpillars, says Voleben. Very clever of the trees. In a recent study from Leipzig University and the German Center for Integrative Biodiversity Research shows the trees know the taste of deer saliva. When a deer is biting a branch, the tree defends Bring, uh, the tree brings defending chemicals to make the leaves taste bad, he says. When a human breaks the branch with his hands, the trees know the difference and brings in substances to heal the wound. So here he goes into a, uh, an area with, uh, with a person. He says, we reach an area that he calls the classroom. Young beech trees, in their own individual ways, are tackling the fundamental challenge of their existence. Like any tree, they crave sunlight. But down here, below the canopy, only 3% of the light in the forest is available. One tree is the class clown. Its trunk contorts itself into bends and curves, making nonsense to try to reach more light instead of growing straight and true and patient like its more sensible classmates. It doesn't matter that the mother tree is feeding him. This clown will die, says Waleben. Another tree is growing two absurdly long lateral branches to reach some light coming through a small gap in the canopy. Waleben dismisses this as foolish and desperate, certain to lead to future imbalance and fatal collapse. So it was just interesting to me that the more scientists dig into some parts of the natural world, they see this order and these underground, invisible, we could say, um, networks of how trees actually help one another. And I know you have to take everything with a grain of salt, but we do know God has ordered his creation to flow in peace and harmony. We see it through nature and the seasons, and we like that, actually. I hope we do, because we know what to expect. We know what comes next, and that gives us a sense of peace and safety. We would not like to see disunity and planets just flying around anywhere they pleased. 
Or how about having the seasons just appear in random order? Not good. I think we enjoy seeing God's wisdom and order around us. And he has told us to consider these things. I'm reminded of the time he spoke to Job after Job was angry at what God has done. And, and what God used to bring him to his senses is just the things around him that he should um, take notice of all of these things around him. And what God has made for us to look at and to perceive and to, uh, to study and to take examples from it. Now, I know we live in a sin-cursed world. I mean, not everything is perfect. We have a lot of, uh, a lot of things going on that we look at and we say soon those things will, be, they will not be there anymore. I mean, we won't be dealing with those things. The natural disasters and all of these different things um, that are happening. So I want to read uh, Romans chapter 12 a little bit. Um, I think Jacob covered it a lot. I mean, some of the things in here. It speaks of the body. It speaks that we should um, present our bodies as a living sacrifice I don't think I'll read all of it. It's just saying here that having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And I think what Brother Jacob was bringing out is that whatever we find ourselves in, whatever we find that our giftings are, we should do it with our whole heart. And uh, I definitely need to learn from that. We can become very distracted in what we do. And I think it leads to a greater, or it leads to a form of disunity if we don't, if not each one of us carries our load and does what uh, we are called to do. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Our Hutterite history is sometimes pretty painful, especially in the last um, 100 years. The way we have dealt with one another, with the choosing sides, the divisions, the maidung, the splitting of churches and communities. And there is something that we have to remember. It does not just affect adults. That's something we have to remember. It's not just going to affect the older generation. Because I remember as a boy running around in our community when all of a sudden we weren't friends with the other boys over there. We started to yell names at the other group when we saw them. And here's the thing. I never understood why. It just happened. I, and maybe some of you say, well, you were too young to understand. But 
I'm just saying that it has consequences. The things that we do have consequences on our children. I just did what the rest of my group was doing. The internal struggles of churches and the disunited husbands and wives have many consequences. And one of them, one of the biggest ones is that the children are pulled into that disunity as well. I well remember when Brother Rubin spoke of uh, the revival in Fort Pitt. And he shared some of the things that happened there. And one thing he he made clear is that when the adults started to forgive and to go to each other and ask forgiveness, he said, an amazing thing happened. Children started to do the same thing. He said it was was quite something to see and it carried down all the way to children and in the same way disunity between a husband or a wife or between members of the community carries down to children and we better believe that maintaining unity I have a writing here from Count Zinzendorf, the Moravian Brethren, it says, In 1747, there arose differences and disunity among the Moravian Brethren, a group of local churches whose influence and missionary effort were widespread. Count Zinzendorf, with representative elders, arranged to hold a conference at which the differing views on the subject of their controversy might be aired and discussed among themselves. The leaders came, some from long distances, to the place at which the conference was to be held. Arriving on the appointed day, each prepared to contest the view he supported and confident that he would receive the acceptance of the majority. They arrived about the middle of a week. In his wisdom, Count Zinzendorf proposed that they should spend some time over the word and in prayer and suggested a Bible reading. The book chosen was the first epistle of John, and they spent the remaining days till the end of the week becoming familiar with the teachings of that letter and learning that one of its main lessons was love for all the brethren. They agreed that on the first day of the week, like the disciples in the early church, they should come together to break bread, and in so doing were reminded that they, being many, were one body. The reading and the study of God's word and the fellowship at the Lord's Supper had a very salutary effect on all. And the result was that when on Monday morning they commenced to examine the matters on which they differed, their differences and disputes were quickly settled, each bowing to the word of God and thus helping to keep unity, keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Wow. I wonder what would happen if if, uh, we would do that. Maybe that's what we should do if we have differences. It it, uh, makes sense to me. So I want to go through a, a list here of practical things that destroy unity in a fellowship. And, of course, the first one is gossip or backbiting. Church members talk about one another instead of talking to one another. Now, maybe you say, well, you yourself don't gossip, but you just enjoy listening to it. I know, speaking for myself, I have to ask myself the question, what is it about when you hear about a misfortune of a certain brother or sister, and in your heart you feel that that person had it coming? God is dealing with them. I'm not saying that that may not be the case. But if you see your heart rising up, or you see your heart glad, you could say, or that the person is is being dealt with, I don't think that's exactly right. Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. 
And uh, one of the brothers shared here a while ago. He was he was at a place, and uh, there was a certain person going through a very difficult time in in his life, and they were sitting around with uh, discussing that person and his issues. And I think the mother walked in, and she kind of overheard, and she she said, "I know one thing." That if you're speaking this way about this brother, I know one thing. You're not praying for him. And it kind of, it really hit the, that brother in his heart. It really uh, told him a lesson. And I think she even said that you're not praying in a right way for him. You might be praying, but it's not in a way um, that is that is actually filled with love or compassion about this person. The second one is having our actions cloaked in darkness or deception. And this can happen in any church. Um, Being found out that you are not really the person that you are making yourself out to be. And it's a good it's a good question to ask ourselves: Are our actions cloaked in darkness or deception? And it can be very hidden indeed. And uh, we can see that in the example of Judas Iscariot, that they were sitting around the uh, at the communion supper, and the Lord said, "There's one here that will betray me," and no one really knew who it was. So we can have our actions cloaked in darkness or deception, and that will destroy unity. It's like a fox, a little fox that's destroying the vines. Self-serving church members, having our own agendas, our own hobbies or dreams, regardless of the support of the brotherhood or the blessings of, of a fellow man. And uh, the kingdom of God isn't about what you are doing or what I am doing. It's about what we are doing together. We may all have some part that is our own. We each have our own role and function in the body, but we cannot just do our duty and forget about everyone else. It's not that we just do our own thing, and if someone else does something that has nothing to do with us. Instead, the Bible urges us to take an interest, a genuine interest in other people. It's, it's definitely, I think there is room for, for hobbies, personal hobbies. I, I think we're each um, involved in things that uh, are our own, basically, some things that we're interested in that others might not be interested in. But just the question is, is how much time does it consume? Is it, uh, I've seen a lot of times in my own life how it affects my wife, my relationship with my wife and my children in a very serious way. And not only that, if it affects my wife and my children, it definitely affects my position in the body and my role as a brother. And I'm just thinking as a school teacher, the husbands and wives expect me to give my all when I'm in the classroom. And I think that's good. They expect me to give my best when I'm there in the classroom. And I can easily not give my best because I have personal interests that I pursue very, very easily. I can just do a half-horse job. And believe me, in my line of work, the outcome is very evident in the end. It's pretty evident. And no, it's not just the teacher's fault. I'm past that one. The parents have a tremendous role to play. But a teacher can make a big difference. And we make a lot of mistakes, but we have to learn from our mistakes. Another thing of disunity is a lack of prayer. 
Prayer has a way of unifying a group of believers because generally when you pray, you pray for other people's needs. And that has a way of getting your eyes off of yourself onto other people. I've had first-hand experience with that, me and my wife, having a group of people as a body praying for you. It's tremendous. And when that is lacking, I think there's a lot lacking. And I know that we have different opinions on this, but I, I, I still actually kind of wish I would still do the, the prayer times with the with the couples together. I know there's a lot of differing opinions on that, but it, it, it's definitely... You remember those things. Remember those times of the importance of prayer and the power of prayer when you're gathered together and praying in, in unity and harmony. Fear of confrontation is another one. Too many church members would rather sweep problems under the rug than deal with them. This creates distrust among members and church leaders. And I have to say, I'm the type of person that avoids conflict. And I'm glad that there are brothers that are willing to to face things more than I do and to deal with issues. And again... It's how those confrontations take place and with what spirit they take place. But when we start sweeping issues under the rug and just ignore them, and believe me, there will be consequences for that. Having a critical spirit, the sin of fault-finding and being critical can tear up churches, marriages, and friendships. It turns molehills into mountains. It makes us become the type of people that Jesus was speaking about when he compared people with this problem to those that are trying to take a speck out of their brother's eye when they have a log in their own. People who have a critical spirit are usually very negative about life and cannot see the blessings that God has given as put all around them. They are focused on the negative rather than the positive. There's a short story to illustrate that point. It says, there is a story of two farmers that went out duck hunting. One man was a positive person who always saw the good in life, and one was a classic example of a person with a critical spirit. Both men went out duck hunting one day, and the positive person had a new hunting dog. The man couldn't wait to show his critical friend his new dog. This dog was, very, was a very special dog, and the man just knew that his negative friend would have to say something positive about this dog. But they got to the duck pond, and just like clockwork, a flock of ducks flew over. Both men were able to shoot a duck, so they called a hunting dog to retrieve the ducks. The dog raced out on the water and grabbed both ducks running on top of the water both ways. While the positive farmer said to his critical friend, what do you think about that? To which his fault-finding friend answered, can't swim, can he? Anyway... You can't seem to please everyone, can you? It just seems like some people just have a penchant for negativity. It just can't seem to please them. And it's, it's definitely it's something to think about when you come into a place where a brother has put in his sweat and tears, basically, and all you see is the things that this person has done wrong or could have done better. It's very demoralizing. It is. <laughs> it's just demoralizing to, to just ought to be pointed. And I know we do have to do that. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that. But we all know the analogy of the sandwich. The meat has to be in between the two buns. And it's just the way it is. You have to put the meat in between the two buns. And that means you have to praise more than you, you uh, show negativity or point out faults. And it's one of those things that does not draw together. The other one is low expectations. 
Many churches have no clear guidelines on what it means to be part of the body of Christ. If you expect little from members, that's exactly what you'll get. And some of them will use their idle time for whatever, different things. Teaching our children is a main thing of plugging in and being part of a body and uh, contributing something. Contributing something to the greater whole. And uh, <clears throat> I guess just low expectations of whatever. I mean, we should be encouraging each other to to greater things and not comparing our... We should not be comparing ourselves to one another and to each other's roles and see. And, and like Jacob said... Um, wow, I wish I could be doing what he's doing. I wish I could speak like he's speaking and uh, these things. But rather trying to find out what you can do for the body. And of course we have power struggles and cliques. I don't know what to say. It's very real, it's evident. I mean... We tend to gravitate towards family. We tend to uh, to have positions go to our head, to take um, undue privileges in positions of power, and to abuse our privileges. Oh, and I know that life is not fair. I mean, it's uh, it's. I think it's not right to think that everything should be done fairly and equally and, uh, and things like that. Uh, it's pretty well impossible to do that. But it is that one aspect, that key aspect of the Word of God, that those with higher positions should be leaders. I mean, also leaders, but servants of all. They should be the ones that are serving the most. And that usually takes care of the power struggles and things like that. If you find yourself as a leader or a person in position, being a servant, willing to take on jobs that, however, whatever they are, And, of course, unforgiveness and not caring about other people's feelings. It's uh, definitely something that can be very real in a congregation, unforgiveness. And not caring about other people's feelings. Not caring about how they feel and what they're going through. And uh, I just keep thinking that a lot of times... people become who they are because of other people not really listening or caring about their needs. They become that way because there's not someone that can come alongside and put a a compassionate arm around their shoulder and ask them what's going on. They become angry and bitter and uh, it's just that's just the way it is so it's a lot of things to look at a lot of things to think about to check our own hearts on pursuing humility in our walk together humility necessarily generates peace among christians humility will prepare you to serve instead of to be served to overlook an offense to pursue every kind of unity, to see others succeed where you fail, and to respond with joy and grace to every other possible source of disunity. And uh, this one is, is real for me here, to see others succeed where you fail. Because we generally, we are people, we are, we're whatever, we're just, we don't want to fail, we don't want to lose. I remember in school when the kids got good at something, time to quit while you're ahead and it's 
It's actually not, it's not a good thing. I mean, yeah, it's, I've heard stories of fathers that have arm-wrestled, you know, their sons, but they know just when to quit and while they're ahead. And I don't know if that's, it, it's, it, yes, it saves face, you know, it's, it, says, it says some things, but there's not a heart of having a someone exceed you and actually actually acknowledging, hey, you're better at this than I am. And I, that's good. Now just channel it in the right direction. Because I've noticed in my heart that I don't, don't like to lose. It's just the way it is. Instead of encouraging someone to be better at it than you are. And it's okay. We do not all have to be cookie-cutter robots to achieve unity. We don't all have to be cookie-cutters to achieve unity. If you think about a symphony, if you think about all of the instruments in that symphony, it would be rather dull to just listen to the violin section, the whole symphony. You'd get pretty tired of it. A symphony is not just violins playing. It is the different parts together that make it sound beautiful. And in the same way that while my wife compliments me, we compliment each other. And if you think about a name, for instance, if I say salt, what do you say? Pepper. If I say ketchup, you say... If I say Mark, you say Delia. It's kind of, it just fits together really well. Because when you think of Mark, you think of Delia. It's, it's just, I mean, not all the time, of course, but generally your mind connects to those things. And it complements each other. My wife balances me out in a lot of things. And in the same way, when you look at a vegetable garden, if you look at a flower garden, it would be really strange to walk back to the garden and just see tomatoes, a whole garden full of tomatoes. Boy, we'd have a lot of ketchup or whatever we make with tomatoes, tomato soup. It would get very, uh, not very appetizing. You, when you walk back to the garden, you, you expect to see variety because that is what makes that is what makes the beautiful flavors that come together. And you take a little of this, a little of that, a little of this, you mix it together, and you have this wonderful soup. And in the same way with flowers, if you walk up to a garden, you don't just you don't just want to see petunias. Okay, you've seen one, seen them all. But it is this, this aspect of everyone has something to give, and it's not the same. And uh, it's, it's, it's definitely... It can also become that you cannot let one thing just take over. If one thing takes over, that's also not good. It's like playing a piano and one key is not working, and one key is way too loud, believe me, the person playing the piano will notice, and they will not want to play anymore. If one key isn't working, or one key is too loud or off pitch, you notice it, and there's something missing. So unity comes not through un uniformity, but through each individual, as different as he may be from the others, turning his gaze steadily upon the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. Unity comes not from a common language or nationality or race or color or political agenda, but from a common vision and posture as we all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord and bow the knee before him. That's quite a picture of unity. As we all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord and bow the knee before him. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, 
Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Keeping our eyes on Christ will solve a lot of our problems. Pressing in to know him, to know what he desires of our life, and to practice the gifts that he has given us for the benefit of others. That's why he has given us the gifts in the first place. Not for our benefit, for for the benefit of others. So, God bless you. And may you help us to search our hearts and to correct the things that are out of order, out of place. So, God bless you.